Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. As 2020 nears its end, on this episode of the People's War Radio Show, we look back at this year in review as we anticipate what 2021 has to offer. There are many major events this year. The death of Kobe Bryant, the death of Chadwick Boseman, and the death of John Lewis. Underscoring the disintegration of European national identity, Brexit was finalized in 2020, and Meghan Markle and Prince Harry departed the royal family. 2020 was also the 100th year anniversary of Marcus Garvey's UNIA convention and the 20th anniversary of Dead Prez's Let's Get Free album. In November, Joseph R. Biden was elected to replace Donald J. Trump as the President of the United States. In December 2019, reports began to surface of a new highly contagious respiratory disease titled Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus Disease 2019. It became commonly known as COVID-19 or even simply coronavirus. To date, there have been over 81 million cases globally and 1.77 million recorded deaths. In the United States, there have been 19.3 million cases and 335,000 recorded deaths. Even with no pre-existing conditions, African people are two times more likely to die from this virus. The coronavirus pandemic has exposed the colonial conditions Africans live under. In March, much of the U.S. went into shelter-in-place orders. The economy slowed, Schools abruptly closed, and international travel largely ceased. The colonial occupation of African communities did not take a break. On May 25th, the world witnessed the brutal murder of George Floyd by cops in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and a global rebellion followed. In thousands of cities in North America, every state in the U.S., and over 60 countries globally, People have protested the occupation of the African community by the police violence. 2020 has been a year of resistance. To sum this year up and point the way forward, we have Chairman Omali Yeshitela of the African People's Socialist Party. Chairman Omali Yeshitela is leader and founder of the Uhuru Movement. Over the past five decades, Chairman Omali has initiated campaigns to defend the democratic rights of the African community, to organize and raise up African women, to mobilize opposition to U.S. wars, and to popularize the demand for reparations to African people. He's built the worldwide Uhuru movement and the African Socialist International with branches in the U.S., Europe, the Caribbean, and on the continent of Africa. Welcome to the People's War Radio Show, Chairman Amali Yeshitela. Uhuru, I want to thank you very much. I'm very uh, excited about being able to share this time with you. Uhuru, Chairman. Early in 2020, there were international discussions of the coronavirus and how it was impacting the city of Wuhan, China. International travelers, colonial tourists, and capitalist businessmen spread the virus throughout Europe, Africa, and the Americas. So, Chairman, when did you first hear about the virus, and what was your initial reaction? Well, it would have been late uh, 2019, and my reaction to it, uh, initially, uh, it was a a kind of... uh, cautious observation to see how this thing was uh, unfolding, how it would unfold. And I, I began to get some signals, uh, more from observers uh, who were sort of how people might characterize as some kind of uh, anti-establishment uh, observers that uh, were beginning to state that this virus, uh, this COVID thing, 
uh, was uh, going to overwhelm. Uh, it was going to be an overwhelming uh, event. And uh, so, you know, I, I kept my eyes on it, but there was nothing that was coming from uh, U.S. ruling class media. Uh, none of the uh, epidemiologists uh, that uh, suggested that was going to be the case. Yeah, Uhuru Chairman, one thing that really stands out to me is the fact that it was actually at the plenary, uh, the first plenary of the 7th Congress of African People's Socialist Party, that Secretary General Louise Kinshasa uh, put down a report on the coronavirus. And before that, and before the movement was really talking about it, there was practically nobody talking about right, it. Right, right. So, so you immediately brought political clarity to the pandemic, terming it the colonial virus. Can you explain to the listeners uh, why you named it such? Early on, there were many people who were saying that uh, it was not affecting and could not and would not affect Africa. And wow, what is this? that's happening that is that we are not being being touched by it. In fact, some African people uh, were strutting, saying that it, it can't hurt us. It's not killing black people. But I knew early on that uh, two things. One, uh, the nature of uh, this, this whole system uh, and how Africans uh, rest uh, 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 on the bottom of this as colonized people. And I also suspected the great... I would even say likelihood that the virus was a form of biological warfare that was initiated, being initiated against African people, like so many other events like this in history, where uh, Europe uh, uh, colonizers, uh, interlopers uh, have used uh, biological warfare uh, to kill uh, people, to take their lands and resources. In Africa, it happened. It happened to the indigenous peoples. It's one of the reasons that uh, you and I, uh, comrade, uh, occupied this uh, place uh, in the United States is because of the successful use of biological warfare against the indigenous people here. So I was suspicious of it because we have a, a, a colonial enemy. I was suspicious of it because I knew that what we were confronted with was not a medical problem, but a political problem of uh, somebody else controlling the power over our lives, uh, whether there's going to be a doctor, whether there's going to be a hospital, whether there's going to be a clinic. There was never any doubt in my mind that the consequences of this thing would be such that Africans would be hit harder than anybody else. And then the nature of the system itself, again, a vicious capitalist system where uh, everything is for sale. It's uh, based on commodity production. Everything is for sale, including health care, uh, et cetera, uh, where there is no uh, health care system uh, in this country, that is to say the United States, which meant that everybody had to go for yourself. If you were concerned about the possibilities of being hit by the virus, every individual running out looking for masks, looking for toilet paper, looking for paper towels, looking individually for, uh, to try to respond to this. And then African people being a colonizing subject people, there was no doubt in my mind that we would be hit harder than anybody else. And then, of course, the evidence began to leak out with all of the excuses and apologies uh, for the reality that Africans were being affected, afflicted uh, by this more than, than anybody else. And not just in the United States. We saw it in England and Northern Ireland and what have you. So that became clear. And for whatever the reasons, even if I could not offer up the empirical uh, data uh, information that showed clearly that this was uh, some kind of biological warfare 
that was being initiated against us, there was no doubt in my mind that we had a, a situation where the virus was being weaponized and that Africans and colonized people would be hit hardest and that we were going to be uh, the group that were left to our own in terms of trying to, to deal with it. So it's a colonial virus. There was no doubt. Uh, in fact, that's how uh, we began to characterize it early on uh, as the colonial virus. And, and uh, we began to move as quickly as possible to try to respond to this thing uh, uh, in a way that uh, would protect uh, the African population, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. Uhuru, thank you for that, Chairman. You spoke of how it was individuals who had to figure it out for themselves and, um, you know, getting toilet paper and food and all these different things. And we saw a massive disruption in the production and delivery of food resources from the farms to the processing factories, all the way to the grocery stores and millions of people faced evictions. And we also saw the stock market at the same time going through the roof and big colonial capitalist companies uh, making huge profits and, and receiving huge bailouts from the government. Um, can you talk about the impact on the global economy that the colonial virus had? Yeah, I think that's an important question. But I think the first thing that we need to remember, comrade, and uh, a lot of people uh, have forgotten, and if they were uh, aware of it in the first place, that the world economy was a, uh, was undergoing a serious reconfiguration even before uh, the colonial virus. And I think one of the reasons that we had to be suspicious of the United States characterizing coronavirus as something that came out of China, uh, that came from China, was the fact that China was uh, such a, a fierce, a serious contender with the United States and Europe within uh, the, the, the capitalist economy, uh, world economy itself. China was making great strides in terms of its own development, and it was happening at the expense of the hegemony of the United States and, and of Europe, of white power, of the colonial uh, powers of the world. So uh, we knew that the United States was making all kinds of moves to undermine that, had initiated a trade, trade war with China to protect its own interests in this whole global economy, uh, et cetera. So those things were already happening. And then with the advent of uh, the colonial virus, we saw it accelerate. And uh, the downturn of the economy uh, exacerbated, and I say the downturn of the economy, I uh, have to be speaking more specifically about the downturn of the, uh, the U.S. and European-centered economy, because China quickly uh, recovered and uh, actually continued its march forward uh, to the point that some are saying that even now China has the uh, the largest economy in the world, and while others are saying, well, in 2035 or something is going to occur, but China is on this march. And uh, even now, we see evidence of the United States doing everything it can to halt that, to block that, to challenge China in a thousand different ways, because uh, China is just such a major contender in this whole economic scenario. Now, you're right, with the COVID crisis, I mean, uh, all kinds of international world global supply lines were halted, were really impacted in a very serious way. One aspect, of course, was agriculture and the movement of food. But more than that, it was uh, even auto parts and things that couldn't be picked up or couldn't be delivered. Ships lined up waiting to be able to dock and couldn't do it because of uh, regulations uh, trying to block COVID infection in different countries, that kind of thing. So it was an incredibly powerful factor in uh, destabilizing and undermining the global economy that uh, 
and headquartered primarily in the United States and, and through Europe. And even as this is occurring, however, uh, as you mentioned, the, the stock market is uh, at, at different times, of course, it's been on this roller coaster uh, where uh, it's obvious that the capitalists can see uh, great gains, uh, even as the masses of the people are experiencing tremendous pain and uncertainty, because that's the way it's rigged. There is profit to be made, uh, even in misery, uh, much profit to be made in misery under the system. And so we saw this, and then we saw uh, also a, a, a greater monopolization of production, some uh, smaller co- companies and corporations failing because they didn't have the capital and the wherewithal uh, to maintain themselves and, and, and some being gobbled up by larger corporations, meaning a greater concentration of capital in fewer hands uh, and fewer co- corporations, uh, et cetera. And that's the nature of the beast. That's the nature of, uh, of this uh, social system. Uh, that we are dealing with, so that we saw those kinds of things. But you know, even when we're talking about uh, how the economy is acting, we're talking about a world economy that's a colonial capitalist economy. And uh, we see that this economy is going through a serious kinds of challenges, and, and I believe that we see it in a state of decline, even though we see a sector of the world economy apparently moving forward. I'm speaking more specifically about what seems to be happening with China and perhaps other uh, countries which have up to now been on the margins of uh, what would be characterized as the global capitalist economy. Uh, Overall, I think we've been watching a decline in the capitalist system as it's centered uh, inside the United States and Europe. We see a fracturing of the unity of the imperialist uh, countries, uh, the imperialist powers, uh, we see a reconfiguration of the political relations that exist in the world based on, uh, on the faltering economy as well. It's an extraordinary period. We do see decay. We do see serious kinds of contradictions. And even when we see this growing concentration of capital in fewer hands in the United States, this too is an indication of a, of a serious kind of contradiction that the imperialists are going to have to speak to. I mean, even this printing of money now, there's no production that's responsible for the trillions of dollars that this government has pumped into the hands of these corporate leaders, these corporations and ruling class elements. Where does the money come from? I and mean, it's like there's some place that they can pump money into the system and there's going to be a payday for that. There's going to be consequences for that in terms of the, the inflation that's going to have to occur, uh, the growing debt ratio that has already uh, happened inside the United States for years and years and growing. And you see uh, countries that are trying to model their economic activity on how the United States does things. You see, you'll see uh, those consequences going to have to be paid up and down the line. That's part of what they have declared uh, as globalization. That's part of what it's going to mean that uh, the whole thing can be brought down by a single, a deep uh, and profound and meaningful contradiction in the social system itself. So on the one hand, yeah, uh, you see evidence of this growing wealth concentration of capital uh, in fewer hands and uh, the consequences of that as it relates to the political scene in the world. You see uh, an economy that is is staggering blindly through the world, uh, trying to hold on in competition with new sectors or emerging sectors, contending forces, And that's part of the contradiction. And then the other thing you see is the growth of the African revolution under the leadership of our party. And that's critical because the African internationalism 
it unites Africans around the world, but we don't exist in a vacuum. And that has implications for revolutionary uh, processes and projects of, uh, of all the peoples uh, on the planet Earth. So I am profoundly enthusiastic about this, uh, this period that we've entered into right now that's reflected in what you just mentioned in terms of, uh, uh, of the economic uh, downturn. But again, that downturn had already begun. Uh, even before COVID uh, 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 struck. And that had already led to increasing uh, competition uh, struggle uh, between China and the United States uh, and and also the re-emergent uh, Russia and the defiant uh, uh, Iran and the uh, defiant uh, Venezuela and all these other peoples around the world who whose just natural activity is trying to survive and to uh, take custody of their own uh, spaces challenges the this whole uh, uh, capitalist colonial capitalist uh, social system globally. It's a social system, a capitalist system that rests upon a foundation of enslavement. And to the extent that the slave rises up and tries to take back our own freedom, our own resources, our own future, it challenges the stability of this kind of social system. And that crisis preceded COVID. And I think that's really important for us to understand. Uhuru. Uhuru, Chairman, as a part of the Uhuru movement, you created the All African People's Development and Empowerment Project, which has spearheaded a campaign in response to the pandemic called the People's War, from which this show actually takes its name. What has the People's War campaign entailed? And why did you call it actually a People's War? Well, one thing I love about the concept of people's war, as you know, uh, uh, the revolutionary movement in China uh, and, uh, and then in Vietnam that I think you know, developed that concept uh, you know, immensely uh, had to do with the mobilization of the whole people in order to defeat the enemy for uh, countries like uh, China and countries like Vietnam that uh, suffered either from total colonialism or neocolonialism or semi-colonial countries or uh, actual colonized countries uh, similar to what we experience all over the world as African people, uh, then uh, our struggle is not like uh, uh, some petty bourgeois, so-called communist Marxist liberal uh, struggle uh, to take over a factory or to get higher wages or something to that effect, which can just be done uh, by a sector of the population. Our struggle is a a struggle as a whole people that's being oppressed uh, as a national, as a nation of people. Uh, who must be brought to consciousness uh, and awareness uh, of our condition and must be united as a nation to solve the problems. And this COVID contradiction gave us a splendid opportunity to move toward uh, the, the, with the concept of people's war, that we would uh, assume responsibility of organizing, mobilizing, growing the consciousness uh, and political response to this pandemic, to this COVID colonial virus uh, beyond what the government uh, is capable or willing to do. The response is in the people. And what is being characterized essentially uh, as a medical crisis is is essentially a political crisis. And uh, that's what we took on. So we say we have a people's war, mobilize the people, energize the people, grow the consciousness of the people to take on uh, this, this, this struggle that's affecting us. And that's in several ways. Uh, one of the uh, most significant aspects of this is that we say we don't give a damn what a Fauci or the U.S. government or any of the uh, uh, departments that are supposed to be responsible for the health of the people, what they say. Uh, for us, the critical thing is to get an understanding as much as we can of uh, how this virus acts and what gives it 
life and then do what we can to limit or destroy its capacity to affect our community. That was one thing that we, let's take this information out. That when this thing first hit, people seem to have forgotten that Fauci was one of the people who said that you don't have to have masks. Masks are not helpful. And some even said that masks might be harmful to wear masks because it will create a, an artificial sense of security. Uh, but, you know, it was clear to us that the mask did make sense and that we should use a mask. And so we said even then that they're lying. And the reason they are saying that masks are not necessary is because they don't have them. Because if they told the people that you're dying like flies and people around the world are dying like flies and the way you protect yourself is to have masks and other kinds of protective gear and they can't produce it, then uh, they not only uh, deepen uh, what already exists as a, a kind of crisis of uh, people not believing in the government, in the system, but it could even uh, reach a, a kind of uh, hysterical uh, response. And you almost saw that with people rushing to supermarkets and buying up all the toilet paper, buying up all the paper towels, buying up all the alcohol, buying up everything uh, on their own. So we took it on ourselves. This people's war under the leadership of the All African People's Development Empowerment Project uh, took us door to door, talking to African people, uh, leaving information for African people in our communities that Nobody else is going to reach. Nobody else is going to come there to do this. The petty bourgeoisie is not going to come and do it. Nobody's going to do this. So we go to the hard-pressed, uh, colonized African community, and we take information about what to do. We stood up on street corners uh, and busy intersections, holding up banners, telling people you know, about washing your hands, about using masks, about socialist distancing, as we uh, like to refer to it, doing other kinds of things to protect yourself. And that was helpful not only because of the information that was there, it was helpful because of who was bringing the information. People had the ability to believe uh, us because we were their neighbors. We were African people ourselves, and we came through our own efforts and not as a consequence of being sent by the government, the same government that people are righteously and rightfully uh, distrustful of in the first place. So we were mobilized to take this to the people and, and to help the people to become part of uh, solving the problem that we uh, are confronted with and dealing with. We even encourage people to do things like looking out for our neighbors. And if somebody doesn't have food, get the food to them. If somebody needs uh, something, then collectively we began to try, we inform and try to influence the community to solve those kinds of problems. That was the people's war. And it was a people's war uh, that recognized that the disease was uh, uh, simply a symptom of a colonial domination by white power and that we were taking this on ourselves as part of the struggle against colonial domination of our people and our communities. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is African People's Socialist Party Chairman Omali Yeshatella. Amidst the initial coronavirus wave in shelter orders on May 25th, an African man named George Floyd was suffocated by a police officer on camera. In a similar fashion to the uprisings after Mike Brown was killed, this murder set ablaze protests not only in the United States, but around the world. What was the significance of this particular incident? And can you tell us about how it impacted the world? Yeah, I think that's a an extremely important question because what you what everybody must remember when we talk about the consequences of May 25th and something a rollout uh, toward May 25th had already be, uh, begun uh, with uh, St. Louis, Ferguson, St. Louis uh, in 2014, August of 2014, 
uh, when we talk about that, we, we must remember that there was a, a revolutionary movement in the whole world. People everywhere were fighting for liberation to get the boot of, of white power off our necks, to get the knee of the whole uh, uh, capitalist system, the imperialist system off our necks. And that movement, after acquiring some successes, like with Vietnam and and of course, in 59, the, the Cuba uh, had uh, become uh, liberated. And, uh, and then, you know, we saw a vicious fight back. Uh, we saw uh, even with the, uh, the crushing of our people's movement in, in, in uh, Kenya, uh, the destruction of the uh, Kenyan Land Freedom Army and the uh, execution of Dedan Kimati, who led that organization that was called Mau Mau. And uh, we saw it with the uh, assault on uh, our, our struggle uh, that uh, resulted in uh, Nkrumah being overthrown and then murdered, in my opinion, and then the murder of Patrice Lumumba. And so this whole meth- this whole process of, of destroying uh, the revolution that uh, resulted in Che Guevara himself in Bolivia uh, uh, being uh, wounded, captured, and, and murdered, and, uh, and then murder happening all over the United States uh, through... Uh, members of the Black Panther Party, co-founder of the African People's Socialist Party, etc. So revolution was in the air and people were moving toward taking our own freedom and that was crushed and it was subdued and people didn't even talk about revolution uh, anymore except for the African People's Socialist Party who had determined we would complete the Black Revolution of the 1960s. And that's what we've been struggling for all this time. And and so uh, when Ferguson happened, Ferguson-St. Louis happened, it was different uh, from what had been happening in the past. Because if you remember, you know, people, the police have been killing people in widely publicized uh, uh, incidents, uh, um, you know, for a while, even before uh, St. Louis. But the thing about St. Louis and that uprising uh, is that the people were able uh, to uh, continue that uprising long enough to draw international attention to it. National attention to it, if you consider you know the United States in in terms of a national territory, and people fought the obviously militarized uh, police organizations, a uh, domestic police of uh, a military force uh, uh, in the streets, uh, and it gathered uh, attention and support uh, expressed every place from Palestine to Turkey to Iran. People expressing support for our struggle as if it were again in the 1960s. We this stuff had begun to unfold. And what was happening is what we've been calling for all along. It looked like it was it had a, had a arrived, and that was complete the revolution that we started before. That's what it was about. And the, what is revolution except uh, the participation, the open mass participation of the masses in political life? This incredible uprising uh, that occurred, it, and it sparked and inspired actions all around the world, just as the Black Revolution has always done once it's unleashed. And so. People rose up everywhere, and they rose up uh, after uh, the George Floyd uh, situation. And what the party has done is to provide the leadership, the political and ideological leadership uh, for this. Because just like uh, they just like uh, they had killed uh, more uh, before George Floyd and before uh, Mike Brown, uh, they had all there had also been rebellions before. And uh, what was missing in every one of those instances was a coherent statement, a coherent message, a, 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 a coherent uh, a recognition, uh, expressed recognition uh, of the colonial uh, capitalist contradiction that uh, 
that uh, weighed down on all of us and all the people around the world. And that's what we took into this process. So we weren't every place. We weren't in most of the places where it happened, uh, but from where we were. And when we were in those places, we took uh, revolutionary demands. We fought and have fought up to now against this nonsensical, non-serving Black Lives Matter kind of stuff. And we fought against the concept of help of hands up, don't shoot. The thing that was striking about Ferguson, uh, St. Louis, is the people weren't saying hands up, don't shoot. They weren't saying Black Lives Matter. They said kill the police, which is a natural response for colonized African people who bore the brunt of the suppression of the revolution that allowed a sector of the population, African petty bourgeoisie, to surface uh, as a part of that talented 10th that Du Bois had already uh, had always promoted who would be over the rest of us. And so uh, uh, with, the, with the George Floyd uh, situation where you had thousands of, uh, of mobilizations, sometimes actual uprisings, what was missing is what the party took into that situation, the political line, a revolutionary science, et cetera. And that has made a difference everywhere. And you can see the change in the language of uh, people who are talking about the struggle. Now, colonialism is increasingly becoming part of, uh, of the lingua franca uh, of this moment. Colonialism, colonialism. You hear people talking about that's what we were saying. And uh, increasingly, you know, you hear uh, people raising up the other kinds of demands. Uh, you even heard during one of the presidential debates, uh, somebody was talking about community control of the police. And that was trying to get in front of the demand that we've raised. We, our party, our movement, Black community control of the police, which is obviously more consequential than a, a notion of defund the police. What the hell does that mean, defund the police? Who's going to defund it? And whoever defunds it is a representative of the state that the police function to uh, represent uh, in our communities every day. So that was really consequential. This and, and we've built, the party has built and continues to build off of this, uh, and we know exactly where we're going uh, as opposed to it being simply uh, a case of uh, involving ourselves in every uh, demonstration, every protest that occurs, and we do that too, uh, but we are doing this uh, with the purpose and toward an end that uh, is for the total uh, liberation of our Africa, our people everywhere, and the unification of the African nation under the leadership of the African working class. Uhuru. Uhuru, thanks for that, Chairman. Thanks for your clarity. 2020 was a year when white nationalism took off the covers from its face in every state behind the push to reelect Donald J. Trump. On the other hand, we had the liberal left get behind Joe Biden, who is responsible for millions of Africans and other colonized people being thrown behind bars, as well as Kamala Harris who gained her political stardom by locking up Africans as the Attorney General of California. You titled the election, The Evil of Two Lessers. Can you talk about the significance of the 2020 presidential election? Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate what you talked about, uh, you know, the what appears to be the, uh, the uh, uh, emergence of, of naked and open uh, white nationalism, because it was uh, a sort of a reemergence of a naked and open kind of uh, white nationalism, uh, because the ideological foundation uh, of the whole uh, capitalist system is what people refer to as, as racism, and that expresses itself as colonial domination. And of course, uh, colonial domination is something that uh, is imposed on people by states and uh, uh, the elections are nothing but the nonviolent contest between different sectors of the ruling class for control of the state. 
uh, in this instance, for the control of the empire, for control of those of us who are colonized. And it doesn't make any difference uh, if uh, somebody is a democratic colonialist or uh, or a Republican colonialist, if somebody is a liberal colonialist or, or what they call a conservative or reactionary right-wing colonialism, colonialism is colonialism. And that's what African people are confronted with. And uh, the fact that uh, 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 Trump would come out and say, I'm a colonialist, uh, that stirred up a lot of people and got a lot of people upset. Uh, and then you have uh, uh, Biden who will come out and say, I'm your friend, uh, but uh, uh, is even more vicious uh, in what he has been able to uh, do uh, to African people uh, with this uh, so-called crime bill that's resulted in a lack of 500% increase in the number of people in prisons that's con uh, contributed to uh, the huge uh, disparity in terms of, uh, of uh, African people being jailed and, and shot down in the streets by police. Uh, but he is the good guy. And it's because he's the good guy because the philosophy or the ide ideology that uh, has become greater in significance than the actual relationship, the actual material relationship, the actual condition that the people suffer from. So if somebody calls you nigger, go out and pick cotton, you're not really helped that much if they say, Mr. Nigger, go out and pick cotton. You're just still picking cotton. You're still on the plantation. You're still catching hell. And uh, what has occurred, of course, is that with the defeat of our revolution, with the killing and maiming and murder inside our communities uh, that just, uh, that kill uh, people like Malcolm, that kill King, that kill members of the Black Panther Party, that kill the co-founder of the African People's Socialist Party, that jail people, frighten people, and then put these substitutes uh, in place as leaders uh, of our community, uh, they have uh, been able to subdue for some time now the evidence of an actual struggle for, against colonialism. And so uh, what has uh, uh, taken control of the entire narrative is not that we're trying to overturn this relationship we have with the foul system, not that we're trying to overturn this colonial domination upon which the entire capitalist system rests, but we just want to make the, the capitalists like us. We just want to make white people who kill us and oppress us and who can actually, whether they are doing that or not, are part of a colonizer population. We just want to make them like us. So we say that uh, empire, colonial capitalism continues to exist. That is the evil. And that evil is there uh, whether a Democrat is in the White House or a Republican is in the White House, where Biden is in the White House or whether uh, Trump is in the White House. That evil is there. Uh, whether there is a, a black president uh, like an Obama uh, who has been selected to rule over us, or whether there's a, an African vice president like uh, Kamala Harris who has been selected to do the same kind of thing. Uh, capitalist colonialism continues to exist. So we're not talking about, uh, as people like to say, you got to vote for the, uh, the lesser of two evils. What we're saying is that there's one evil and two lessers. The evil is colonial capitalism and the lessers are their servants. Uh, like Trump, their servants like Biden. Uh, and, uh, and if there seems to be a contest uh, at all, it is simply a reflection of the struggle between the different sectors of the colonial capitalists in who is going to be able to get the most benefit from oppressing uh, the colonized peoples of the world, including African people here and elsewhere. You are listening to The People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is African People's Socialist Party Chairman Amalia Shetela. 100 years ago, it is reported that around 25,000 Africans met in 
Madison Square Garden to decide the future of African people worldwide. Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association gathered and established the red, black, and green flag as the African flag. As we recollect on the significance of this event in August 1920, what can you tell us about the process that Garvey began and how it has been able to take shape 100 years later? Adding to that, I'll say that for almost 100 years, many enemy forces have slandered Garvey, as you know. Yet you have boldly declared the Uhuru movement as the 21st century Garveyites. So adding <laughs> to that legacy of Garvey, what is the strategy of your organization and movement to achieve self-determination and freedom for African people? What should African people and others be looking forward to in 2021? I thank you so much, Comrade uh, Massimello, uh, for everything that you uh, said regarding this subject. Um, first of all, I want to say that the, the, you know, the often quote, quoted uh, number of 25,000 people who attended that uh, convention held in Madison Square Garden by the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, the UNIA, that's a, a, a severe understatement of the number of people. The fact is that uh, there were so many people that they could not accommodate them at Madison Square Garden. So they had to put speakers up outside. And I have seen estimates of up to 50,000 people who attended that. It was a huge event. And I think it's really important to understand that uh, for a number of reasons that we don't have enough time to get into. Uh, but one thing I do want to say is that because we mentioned uh, uh, people like uh, Du Bois and uh, we mentioned people like CLR James and uh, and their position around who Africans are uh, and our, our place uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, there were uh, other forces who existed at the same time of the Garvey movement, people who were promoting the idea of the Black Belt South being the homeland of African people, et cetera. All of them existed at the same time. Du Bois, the NAACP, and the Talented Tenth Project existed at the same time. In fact, the Du Bois building of the Pan-Africanist Congress was something that was done to contend with and undermine the movement that was initiated by Marcus Garvey that saw Africa for Africans at home and abroad as the main slogan at a time where Du Bois is erudite, as erudite, as remarkably educated as he was, especially for the time that he lived, was saying that Africans who lived in the United States couldn't survive the climate in Africa. Just ridiculous uh, statements like that. And obviously not statements born of uh, some kind of objective scientific appraisal, but based on his own class prejudices in terms of, of how things should move. So uh, I, I mentioned all of this to say that uh, at the same time, all of these organizations existed and it was Garvey's UNIA that prevailed overwhelmingly, that won uh, the support of masses of African people around the world and the respect of governments, uh, including United States governments and others, uh, for the power and potential that it represented. So that that was uh, extremely important. And the Garvey movement, when you see Garvey's uh, beginning in, what, 1914 in Jamaica, and uh, he comes to the United States, I think that might have been 1917, uh, sometimes uh, shortly thereafter. And in a very short period of time, you know, developed this massive, organized this massive movement of Black people all around the world without the benefit of Zoom or social media and even effective things like phone calls, et cetera. He, this extraordinarily massive movement that 
bought shipping lines, etc. This was a major profound statement that the task before us as African people was to reconquer our self-determination, uh, reconquer our Africa that now was in the possession of, of imperialists, of white power, white people, etc., to reconquer our sovereignty, our dignity, and uh, not to get white people to like us. This was the profound movement. This is a, an extraordinarily ideological statement that was made, and that was not simply made as a purely abstract thing, but uh, that was represented, that he made representative in the real world. Uh, with the uh, economic institutions, with the uh, symbolic institutions of the military force and the Black Cross nurses, all of these forces that he pulled together that reflected the intent to consolidate a national, when I say nationalist sense, I'm talking about all African, a movement, a movement for national liberation as opposed to uh, integration or something to that effect. And that's part of what the power of the Garvey movement was. And that's one of the reasons it's been so important to disappear Garvey uh, from history, to hold up a phenomenon like uh, uh, Du Bois. And I say Du Bois in particular because he was one of the most outspoken opponents of Garvey. He was one of the most uh, uh, significant opponents of Garvey because he was supposed to be uh, one of the leaders uh, of Black people uh, in the United States and, and for portions of the world. And so the contest uh, philosophically was one between Du Bois uh, and Garvey. And obviously, the bourgeoisie, the imperialists would prefer to have us believing and following uh, Du Bois than Garvey. And even some uh, so-called black leftists today will hold up Du Bois as this great leader of black people. And even some black nationalists and pan-Africanists would put uh, Du Bois and, and Marcus Garvey uh, as a part of the same phenomenon when both, both of them, when they were alive, both Du Bois and Garvey, make sure that everybody understood that they were not part of the same movement, the same phenomenon. So I just think that one reason that Garvey has been attacked and slandered so much is like Haiti, you know, where you had a revolutionary movement in Haiti. And Haiti has paid the price forever for having been the first successful slave rebellion in the world. And his was the greatest threat to capitalism in the world at a time where the whole capitalist system revolved around the slave trade then you had the, uh, the, the, the Haiti, Haitian Revolution that challenged all of that. And so that's why you can't hear anything about Haiti. And that's why even people who uh, call themselves militants, etc., would dismiss uh, the significance of Haiti. So Garvey has suffered the same kinds of consequences because of what a, a follower of Garvey uh, represents to the existing social system and the domination of African people. Now, I said a follower of Garvey. Uh, the truth of the matter is some of the biggest uh, contradictions we suffer around the identification with Marcus Garvey is a consequence of, of people who call themselves Garveyites or followers of Marcus Garvey, who uh, have liquidated who Garvey is. They've turned him into a quote-unquote prophet. They've made him uh, some kind of uh, idealistic uh, force that they can drag out every uh, August Seventeenth, uh, which was his birthday, and you know, sing praises to, etc. But don't have the responsibility to do what Garvey did. Garvey was an anti-imperialist force. People have to, need to remember, Garvey didn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, uh, reports from FBI snitches to the headquarters of the FBI talked about how people from all over the world, not just Africans, they came regularly to report to Marcus Garvey. Read uh, Tony Martin's book, who also confuses the question of Pan-Africanism and Garveyism, but this whole struggle that we were involved in, that Garvey 
uh, was responsible for was the struggle against the whole relationship that we, we have. And so what the party has done, and this challenges the notion that many people call themselves Garveyites and who want to hold them up as some kind of pedestal, make him the prophet Garvey, uh, that uh, they don't have to do anything to follow in terms of what he did. The party has uh, taken the essence of the Garvey movement, which is to destroy uh, this uh, colonial relationship that we have, and not just in one place, but the whole world, to engage in practical uh, struggle to recapture Africa for African people, recognizing that the revolution to liberate and unify African African people globally is the critical question and the, defense, and the defeat of capitalism and the rise of of uh, anything that's genuinely can be referred to uh, as the socialism that is the uh, starting point for uh, the emergence of, uh, of, uh, of communism, a classless society. And that's who we are. We recognize that clearly. Uh, and, and we articulate that very clearly. We've taken, you know, like the words and programs and things like that that were taken, that put forth by Garvey, uh, and we've developed them uh, over the last uh, several years. I mean, we've, as a party, have existed for nearly half the time that you're talking about uh, the 100 years of, ago that Garvey was here. And we've worked for the last 40 some odd years uh, to implement the program that we see. And what do I mean by what we see? What we see is that African people, the working class, African people, African internationalists uh, throughout Africa are moving now to build a revolutionary organization with the objective of taking back Africa, uniting all over Africa. African people in the Caribbean are coming together under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party to spread out throughout the Caribbean to organize and mobilize African people uh, in this, uh, this project uh, for the liberation and unification of Africa and African people globally. And we're doing that in Europe, and we're doing that in the United States, and we've created these institutions, economic institutions, for the purpose of uh, negating the economic authority of colonial capitalism uh, in the lives of, uh, of our people, et cetera. Even the institutions that we mentioned up to now, we talk about APDEP, All African People's Development Empowerment Project. That's the only project I know of in the world that's an all-African program. And I talked about how we dealt with COVID-19 and the People's War. We didn't just do it in Philadelphia. We didn't just do it in St. Louis in the United States. We were doing this in Folkville and Everton West uh, in the townships of South Africa and various other places around the world. So we are constructing right now the process of deconstruction of uh, colonialism and the liberation of and unification of Africa and African people globally. That's why we say we're 21st century Garveyites and we know uh, where it is that we are going. Uh, and and uh, the working class is crucial to this. Uh, the working class party is crucial for this. Uh, revolutionary science is crucial to this. And as there was an African fundamentalism, which is how Garvey uh, described uh, the UNIA, then, 100 years ago, today, there's an African internationalism, which uh, has the same uh, significance, uh, with the exception being that we are clear that part of our objective in destroying colonialism is the capture of political power by uh, the working class and its own suffrage interests. Uh, to uh, lead to the advent of uh, a genuine socialism. And from that, uh, to what Nkrumah uh, talked about as being uh, the, the communism, uh, where there is each uh, two according to need and from each according to ability. Uhuru. Uhuru, Chairman. So we know that the Uhuru movement has an Action Pact 2021 planned ahead. Uh, what are some of the events that we can look forward to? 
Well, I think uh, I, I've, I've been made excited uh, so much by uh, some of the last meetings that I've gone to in terms of our plenary that's coming up in a few weeks. And uh, this plenary is something that uh, uh, we do uh, annually during the uh, five-year period between the Congresses that we have. And uh, a part of that, of course, is a checkup on where we are in terms of how successful we've been in carrying out the mandates and resolutions of our Congress. And then uh, to see what uh, has changed and how we have to modify that and move things forward, et cetera. I'm extraordinarily excited. I'm, I'm looking at what's happening uh, through the African National Women's Organization, which sits on the Central Committee of the African People's Socialist Party, and uh, how uh, this force has really uh, developed and is bringing uh, more and more African women into political life, not as some kind of feminist uh uh, but uh, as uh, a front of the African revolution that while making this revolution focus in a very serious way uh, on how uh, colonial capitalism impacts on, on African women and what that means in terms of what we have to do to forward the revolution to make sure that the outcome of this revolution is something that speaks to uh, the interests of African women so that African women do end up uh, practically being equal partners in this struggle to, uh, to uh, create the new world. On an international level, they've already begun this process of dealing with uh, uh, child care collectives so that we begin to recapture uh, control of our children and authority over our children. Uh, this whole thing that people like Hillary Clinton, they, they love to take African uh, traditions and saying and then use them against us, like uh, something about it takes a village to raise a child. Well, that's something that comes from a whole collective tradition of Africa. And we are uh, reinitiating that uh, practically uh, with the child care collective that doesn't rely on the government uh, to make it happen, but cooperation among the people in our communities, men and women, to collectively take this on and, and institutionalizing that in various places around the country and, and extending that to Africa And in the last discussion I had with people. That's exciting to me. And it's pulling African women into political life. Uh, because one of the things that has made it difficult for African women to be in political life is because of how capitalism has alienated, created all this serious alienation based on uh, economic and political structures thrust into our lives that uh, require for survival, which is extraordinary because you can't survive like this. But separation of African men and women and African men from African children you know, something like one and a quarter million African men have disappeared, a situation where something like only 80 African men for every 100 African women in the United States. And in Ferguson, uh, St. Louis, only 65 African men for every 100 African women. These are, these are prices that we pay as communities. And so uh, what these sisters are doing, they are, are building these processes to create these child care collectives to influence how the prison situation is going to be dealt with. There's, you know, uh, correctly a lot of uh, discussion that happens about the growing numbers of African women in prison. But the fact of the matter is that even with that contradiction, this huge amount of African men that how what that does uh, to our communities with these men locked up in these prisons and being killed by police throughout this country. So. These, these women are involved in a very practical way in taking on this, these kinds of questions. And these, this is being taken on not as some kind of charity project or some kind of uh, self-help project that allows us to survive inside the system, but they are being taken on as a part of the attack against the system. 
that's destroying uh, the solidarity of our communities as a part of the uh, of the means of controlling us. So I, I'm just really impressed by that. And with the APDEP projects that you mentioned in terms of the, the healthcare system, the Black Onk, people can remember seeing the sites from Katrina in Louisiana and uh, how that hurricane uh, was weaponized and functioned as in addition to everything else as a means of uh, pushing Africans out of our communities, displacing uh, whole uh, communities and things like that. And the Red Cross that's supposed to be there for everybody did nothing, uh, nothing meaningful in terms of helping our people, uh, et cetera. And then, you know, we've seen things like that happen all around the world. So Haiti, 300,000 people, 300,000 people died in an earthquake. And I think the, and the Red Cross got billions of dollars to respond to that from peoples uh, around the world and certainly from African people and did nothing with it. I think they might've done six houses or something like that. So Black Ark is our Red Cross. It's our response where that's being organized. It's an international entity that being organized so African people can look out for ourselves. We become our emergency responders. We become and define what is uh, uh, an emergency because it's an emergency when police are gunning us down in our communities that the Red Cross doesn't recognize that. And, and there's so many other things like that that's happening, growing gardens and influencing African people to grow food because there's this ongoing complaint about food deserts uh, in the African community. Here you got all these Africans who the white man used, who colonialism used uh, to grow food as part of the economy that made the United States so wealthy. And then there is no food, no ability to grow food, et cetera. We're changing that. We're taking that on. So uh, every place there's a possibility of growing something, we're going to grow some food there so that African people will be able to take the desperation out of our existence. And that's not just an empty desperation. It's a desperation that influences behavior. So that if everybody is uh, on his own trying to survive uh, in a hostile, uh, economically hostile situation, every man for himself, everybody competing for resources, that really grows this uh, fight among black people. That grows our susceptibility to this economic activity that's imposed on us in the form of drug economy and things like that. We're growing our own. We're kicking this off. We don't expect that we're going to have these agri-corporations that's going to be happening, uh, but we will make it possible if everybody in a single community, African in a single community, uh, if we grew our own food, even if in our backyards, even in community uh, gardens, if we reinstill that kind of culture, it uh, affects the behavior in the community and it affects the behavior of institutions like Walmart that can work us for nothing and make the Sam Walton family richer and richer at our expense. These are the kinds of things that, that's happening. I'm looking forward to that. We are actually constructing, through the African People's Socialist Party, we are actually uh, constructing the nation-state power, the African nation-state power that will ex that's expanding the globe more and more every day. We are creating the incipient, independent African anti-colonial economy that spans the globe everywhere. Uh, and we are making our own friends and allies uh, throughout the world so that we can collectivize the struggle that we are involved in, uh, have friends who work with us uh, and friends with whom we work in the struggle against colonialism. I'm, I'm excited about this. And I think that more and more people are open to that. I think the rebellions and protests that we've seen is further evidence of that. And of course, the growth of the party uh, and our institutions. I mean, you know, we have the International People's Democratic Hold Movement that's called NPW. This organization 
has uh, assumed the responsibility of leading political struggles with masses of people, fighting to demand reparation, making it a concrete demand that doesn't rely uh, on the president, doesn't rely on the government, that doesn't rely on the parliament or anything like that. It relies on the relationship we have with the people because we say that uh, reparations is a function of the revolution. So we got people who are engaged in signing petitions and saying, yes, 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 reparations to African people for the values of uh, stolen labor, for everything that's been done to us, for the existence of this particular, uh, uh, this political economy, yes uh, to reparations to African people. And then not only yes to reparations for African people, every individual now has an opportunity to, to be a part of the reparations movement. You don't have to wait uh, for the Congress to convene. You don't have to wait uh, to see if somebody's going to pass some kind of resolution uh, in the Congress or the president's going to give this and that. The people uh, can be mobilized right away, and they have a part in it. We talk to people about it, and people don't know about reparations except as a consequence of the discussion that we're having with people and carrying out our day-to-day work. And then uh, beyond that, we talk about reparations. We're talking about the colonizer uh, who uh, can participate in providing reparations to African people and have been doing this uh, for years now through the African People's Socialist Party, contributing to the uh, construction of an independent African economy that is clear, made manifest. Go to Ferguson, uh, go to St. Louis, go to all these other places, and you see these institutions growing up in the middle of uh, some of those hard-pressed, down-pressed communities of the African working class in this country, and that's something we're extending throughout the world. So we're excited about it. We're excited about it because the African Revolution is growing a capacity uh, in this period uh, that we haven't seen ever since the Garvey movement, and certainly we haven't seen anything close to it uh, since the defeat of the Black Revolution in the 1960s when this government and others were engaged in gunning down and jailing uh, revolutionary forces who were just trying to fight for our happiness and the return of resources that's been stolen from us over the years. You are listening to The People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Chairman Amalia Shetela, leader of the Ahur Movement and founder of the African People's Socialist Party and the African Socialist International. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Chairman Amalia Shetela, for joining us today. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We can't take no more of this colonial virus. Down.